0: I'm Rob Woodward, joined by Darren Schmidt. We're divorce lawyers, helping you navigate the six divorced and done steps to move through your divorce quickly and efficiently without bankrupting yourself emotionally or financially. Everything we talk about in this show is for your information, but it is not legal advice or legal opinion of any kind. Darren Schmidt, we have a very
1: special guest joining us this evening. We do. We sat down with Charmaine Panko for a great 30 minute interview about her work as a collaborative lawyer in Saskatchewan. And Rob, you and I know Charmaine because uh, she's sort of out there on the internet like we are as lawyers. She has a pretty strong presence on LinkedIn and we were introduced to her through her work on TikTok. And she has her account on TikTok at Common Sense Lawyer. She's been answering audience questions on that platform for quite some time. She's a really energetic, fun lawyer, and it was great to sit down with her. Uh, Charmaine's been practicing for a number of years, since 2007, through her firm, Panko Collaborative Law and Mediation in Saskatoon. So I thought it was a great episode, and she raised some things, Rob, that you and I were not aware of as being part of the collaborative law process. So I think without further ado, let's send it over to our interview with Charmaine. Okay, Charmaine, thank you for joining us. Uh, Before we get into anything, you use a moniker online called Common Sense Lawyer, and that's branding you use as well in your uh, law firm uh, practice. And so the antithesis of common sense, I think, is nonsense or no sense. And we can all think of maybe lawyers – Uh, or others that we've dealt with in our practice that are maybe fit the the mold of nonsense lawyers. But it's interesting you use the phrase common sense lawyer. So what does that mean to you being a common sense lawyer?
2: Mm -hmm. So there's a saying that goes, uh, common sense isn't always common practice. And I think that there's some truth to the fact that we all know the common sense that our grandmother told us or our favorite school teacher and their basic principles like treat others like how you'd like to be treated respond to correspondence think about the short-term and the long-term impact of the actions that you're taking and the behaviors and the words that you speak, that once they're spoken, you can't take them back. And in calm moments, nobody's going to argue with anything I just said. We're all going to nod our heads, say yes, we have heard that before. And of course, that's common sense. But when we are in these escalated moments that often occur when we're going through separation and divorce, or as lawyers, when we are advocating on behalf of our client and we're engaged in discussions with another lawyer, we sometimes seem to forget some of those basic principles of common sense. And so I thought, why not kind of put that out there and say, You know, when you come in to see me and we're going to talk about your situation, we're going to try to approach it through the lens of common sense. What makes sense to do and not just how do we want to react? Because there's an emotional component to the situation.
1: Do you find that? The people that walk through your front door—I mean, you—you're—you're you, you're a known presence, certainly online and otherwise, certainly in uh, where you practice in Saskatoon and Saskatchewan more broadly. But do you find when people come in, they're expecting to meet with someone in your firm that is common sense because that branding is used? Like, I'm going to speak with someone that speaks my language that can give me sort of practical talk. We can have a real conversation. Versus some stuffy suit in a high office tower and I I feel this distance from this person, you're almost making them feel like, hey, let's have a real conversation.
2: I certainly hope so, and it's one of the reasons why it is our branding is because I want people to feel like when they come to our office for advice, we're not going to be a cheerleader. We're not going to just say, oh, yes, we'll get you what you want because we know that's what they want to hear. And we're also not going to be kind of throwing our hands up in the air and say, oh, gee, I don't know. But instead, to really apply some logical problem solving to the situation. And so I realized that sometimes people like literally just stumble upon their lawyer, you know, they don't know anybody or anything. They Google search uh, family lawyer, first thing that comes up where there's an office that looks like it's open. So you're going to have some of those people that just, they don't even have any expectations, let alone know what our brand is. But I'm hoping that people who are actually thoughtfully searching out a lawyer and they see that branding and then they read a bit about our story and our approach that they say, yes, this makes sense to me.
0: So in your practice, I note in your email signature and on your website, you do predominantly hold yourself out as a collaborative lawyer with a collaborative practice. Do you exclusively do collaborative law or do you do adversarial traditional court work as well?
2: We are exclusively a collaborative law firm that also offers mediation services and what we call settlement advocacy. So that means if somebody has been served with a petition or a court application, they can still come and work with us, but we won't participate in that adversarial process. Sometimes we are helping give them support if they want to self-represent. Sometimes they are actually going to engage another lawyer, one who has that specialized skill set to be able to uh, navigate the litigation process effectively. And we are providing that background um, advice around, well, what other resources there may be needed? What are some of the um, for lack of a better way of putting it, maybe strategic approaches to actually getting the outcome that you're looking for that isn't just about presenting the law and persuading the third-party decision-maker, but actually engaging in the psychology of interpersonal relationships.
1: Did you you wake up one day and say, I'm only going to do collaborative family law, and you just marched down that path? Or were you someone uh, that did do some litigation along the way and then said, holy cow, this is uh, terrible, not because um, you weren't great at it, um, but because, and Rob and I can empathize with this, typically family law litigation is terrible because it's embarrassing for the parties and it's costly and time consuming and all those other things. So was this always your goal to be uh, exclusively collaborative in, in that approach in your family practice or did this evolve somehow?
2: I feel like it was a little bit of both. I do feel like it evolved because I didn't know what I didn't know when I started practicing law. So just to give you a little context, um, I returned to law school as a mature student. So my first life, if you will, is I was an entertainer. So I had gone to New York to go to school to be an actress. And um, I very quickly, you know, ran out of money and had to find a way back to Canada. <laughs> um, and the a person who ultimately became my husband was a stand-up comedian and still is. That's his profession. Oh my goodness. The only okay. thing that he's ever done. So we had returned to Canada uh, when I really totally ran out of money and could no longer sustain my desire to, um, study acting in New York City, but that didn't mean that I was not going to still be part of the performing arts world, but I decided I would do my acting in Canada, and we opened an entertainment agency, and of course, in, we were in Toronto, and we ran out of money there again, so there's sort of like this consistent theme, but it brought us back to Saskatchewan, which was our hometown or province, and it was once we settled back here that I felt like, oh, I guess I'm not going to be an actress. And what else would I like to do with my life? So I went to law school as a second career. And as I pursued that second career, honestly, my, my entry point was I mean, we had been sued (laughs) and we were involved in a lawsuit and I was like, ooh, that's a big lawyer bill. Maybe I should be a lawyer. Um, I had grown up on Nancy Drew books and even though Nancy Drew was not a lawyer, her dad was and somehow that stuck in my head. So I was like, I will go to school. I'll be an entertainment lawyer. It was really the only thing that I knew. But once I started to attend law school, I realized like, oh my goodness, there are so many different ways. And I actually have a slight bit of embarrassment to confess. I loved tax law. My tax law class rocked. I think it was mostly because I had a fabulous professor and less that it was because the content rocked. But I never really was clear as to what kind of lawyer I'd be, but I could tell you two things. One is that I was thinking entertainment law or maybe criminal law because Des and I, my husband, we love to watch Law and Order. But the one thing that I knew for sure I was never going to do was family law. So that <laughs> goes to show you how uh, you know God has a sense of humor. So when I finished law school, I went and I worked at a a corporate commercial firm, but in every corporate commercial firm, there are always clients who have, you know, their marriages break down or they have a cousin who does. And, you know, I don't know whether it's genderized or it's because I was a mom or what it might have been, but it didn't take long for me to start to get some of the family files. and As I engaged with families going through this very difficult process, it took me a millisecond, if that, to recognize that the adversarial process did not line up with my understanding as a mom, as a wife, as somebody who... Um, with homeschooling my children and interacting with other families, what I knew intuitively, not from an educational perspective, but intuitively about how people have to work together in order to move forward. And I started to investigate Things like mediation and collaborative law, and the more I learned, the more I just realized that to be true to myself, I needed to practice exclusively in a non-adversarial format, and that was kind of my origin story.
1: I was going to say the uh, the overlap between you and Rob is fascinating because uh, he's a magician uh, by trade; he still does magic, and no so you're way. both. You two are entertainers, so this is wonderful.
2: Excellent. <laughs> uh, well,
1: I was just gonna say,
0: uh, I I don't know if it's overlap or listening to your story, uh, and not to make this about me at all. Yeah, I started in the U.S. I wanted to do some things there, got way too expensive came home, you yeah. go to law school, Darren and I both, and I don't know if we've ever disclosed this on this podcast, said, we're not doing family law, because we did oh take the God, class together, and, and here we are, and I do have a bent toward collaborative law, so I I, I don't want to say small world, but, but maybe it's just, know, the and, and it's a common story, probably not. Right. And, you know,
2: sometimes we find each other as well. Right. And how that all comes together, whether you are a person of faith or you just believe that that's the way the universe works. The reality is, is that you do find each other sometimes and you find ways to share stories and uh, learn about each other and how we can work together to impact the people we serve.
0: And I also did the tax moot in law school. And the only reason oh, I took no. the tax classes <laughs> wasn't because I was good at tax law, but because I really liked the professor and encouraged Darren to take the same there classes. You go. He didn't have as much fun as I did. And so, <laughs> so I, I mean, my, my tax career was maybe half a second longer than his, but uh, right. uh, here we both are.
2: <laughs> Picking up... Go
0: substantively on the collaborative piece so mm-hmm. when you had that revelation for yourself realizing that the adversarial process isn't serving families well my understand and Darren and I while we encourage of course a collaborative process we're not formal collaborative lawyers so my understanding of collaborative law and I should let you explain it my understanding is it's you sign up with an agreement that you're you're going to commit to that process with the other Mm -hmm. person is that what you do and can you explain Mm -hmm. a bit more about that
2: absolutely so the participation contract is this foundational piece of what I'll refer to as capital C collaborative practice. Because quite frankly, we can all be nice people and we can collaborate. And there are lots of people that were in lawyers who will utilize that in their marketing, right? I'm collaborative. So come and work with me and we'll brainstorm. And that's a good thing. Uh, But the capital C collaborative practice is actually its own unique type of process. And that foundational piece of the participation Contract is one where, in that agreement, that both parties, as well as the lawyers, as well as any other professionals that join the team, such as child specialists or separation coaches or financial neutrals, or if it's a family with a faith-based perspective, they might involve a pastor or an elder from their indigenous community, whoever might be appropriate to have on the team signs a participation contract and within that participation contract not only are we all committing to the same basic principles that you find in mediation such as these are all confidential and without prejudice kind of discussions and we're engaging in them through uh, the lens of good faith and open transparent discussions but we also include a disqualification clause and that disqualification clause says that we are all so committed to what we're doing that if for some reason it doesn't work in full or in part, we will not engage in the adversarial process on behalf of our clients. And that extends to the other professionals who are involved, which means they will not lead evidence if this becomes a litigated matter. This provides the comfort to the parties to know no one's playing a game, no one is. Being strategic. They don't have to worry that oh, we're not going to be able to unhear something that was shared in the confines of the collaborative process. They know that we are there committed to them. And frankly, what professional, whether you're a lawyer or otherwise, is wanting to lose their clients? So to put that commitment forward. For your client and to show the other side that that's how committed you are to the process is actually, i go so far as to say, the magic in the collaborative process.
1: Do you find um, people aborting the litigation process to jump into the collaborative process or is it more common, and I would think this is the case, that they start collaborative, stay collaborative, they never leave to go litigate? I don't know how people kind of find that path, but.
2: Mm -hmm. I can say I've never personally um, had a file that had been litigated and then was coming into collaborative. I have had matters that have been either litigated in the past tense or are litigating that will come into mediation. But I've never had that personal experience of them coming to collaborative. Though I have had the opportunity to hear stories um, I'm a member of the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals the IACP which has recently been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize so Ooh. it's an amazing amazing movement and um, it, they hold a forum every year and they have all sorts of, you know it's like a typical conference where there's workshops and speakers but mm-hmm. they have had people come and talk about their experience of having litigated and just come up against the wall that then they decide that they will come into a collaborative process. And it's fascinating to hear what that experience is like for them because there's a tremendous amount of damage that occurs for them in that adversarial model for them to be able to say, whoa, 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 enough with the damage. And now let's try something different because without some level of trust, in each other that you are going to engage with good faith, it can be very difficult to commit. So I'm very fascinated by those people that are able to do a, what that be you a know, 180, I guess into yeah. a whole different kind of model.
1: I, cause we get a lot of questions from our listeners and I think that's maybe something, uh, I've overlooked, uh, Rob, perhaps both you and I have overlooked at saying, Hey, you know what? Um, Because we'll get lots of questions from people that'll say, I really want to mediate and my ex doesn't, but it's unclear from the question whether the ex actually doesn't or what's going on there. And to say, well, instead of mediation, maybe you do do that 180 if you both want to commit and jump into the collaborative process and just totally get off the litigation path and say, you know what? We've done as much as we can through this litigation process. It's not serving us well. Who the heck has the money for a multi-day trial like no one does? So let's pivot and put our resources towards being collaborative and go that way. So it's interesting (laughs) you say you don't see that very often. But I think uh, those of us that aren't designated collaborative lawyers, we could probably do a better job at actually recognizing that and saying, hey, there's uh, there's a totally other option here for you that you didn't even consider.
2: Absolutely. And in fact, I would go so far as to suggest that part of your competency as a lawyer is to understand not just how mediation works or how negotiation works, but how collaborative process works, in light especially of the new Divorce Act. And so to be able to listen to your client's story and to ask those open-ended probing questions about what's really important to them and their outcome, to then be able to present them with the various different options and allow them the Self determination and their right to their own autonomy to choose what process is they think is going to be the most appropriate for them, always with the understanding that at some point you might pivot. And in collaborative practice, we pivot as well. Sometimes you we can be going along and there may be a tricky little legal question. One of the, my favorite examples is that of imputing income, especially here in Saskatchewan, we have a lot of farmers and you know, mm. how the heck do you figure out what is the appropriate income to attribute to somebody for the purposes of setting child support or spells of support or both. So we might be in that collaborative process and recognize that this legal legal question is less one that should be negotiated but one that would be a- appropriate to have somebody determine so Together, if everybody agrees, we can put that question to an arbitrator, or even to a judge for that matter. Simply saying that you need a judge or a third party decision maker to provide some guidance and a decision on something doesn't automatically translate to having to be adversarial. When I think about the definition of being an adversary, I mean, it's just, it's frankly, it's kind of bizarre. Um, In light of not only all the social science research, but you look at the language of the new Divorce Act, and then provincially changes that have been made, of course, I'm only familiar with Saskatchewan legislative changes. But, you know, everywhere we look, it's about protecting children from the conflict. And we know that protecting adults from conflict is important too. And yet, we say here we have an adversarial system you can be adversaries that doesn't those two things just do not quite jive but there's wisdom in accessing wisdom so if there's a decision to be made to say let's get somebody to make this decision for us then we have the decision we can come back and we can continue to discuss how we're going to implement that decisions. So there are ways in which it doesn't have to be this kind of dialogue that says, oh, there's litigation lawyers, and then there's settlement lawyers, or there's collaborative lawyers. Frankly, we're all lawyers that are seeking to serve families and to support and help them through what is arguably the most important and stressful transition in their life, and help them ensure that they get a result that's serves their interests, their needs, that recognizes their legal rights and obligations, fully informed and helps them to implement that. So if we all understand the processes and how we can weave clients in and out as they need to be, I think we can really customize a fantastic um, divorce and done for everybody.
0: So that's a really interesting point that you raised and Darren and I, I think in our practice, we absolutely hold ourselves out as people that want to be collaborative. As you say, happy, friendly people. Absolutely. We want to do that and use those skills for our clients to advance their cases. But neither Darren nor I have ever really approached capital C collaborative law, as you put it. And one thing you said this evening really struck me the ability if you do get stuck on an issue to sever out one discrete issue for adjudication by a judge or a decision maker and not just say oh sorry we're stuck on this issue even though it may be minor this is fatal to the whole process we're going to collapse the entire thing everyone has to get new lawyers and go out on their merry way and the fact I suppose, as you suggested, that you can pull out individual pieces, get that decision, and then come back to the collaborative process. When you do that, do you refer people to outside counsel? Or would you say, purely for this one issue, we'll still represent you and take that forward to a court? How do you navigate that?
2: It completely depends because the nature of a capital C collaborative process is really anything's on the table if everybody agrees. So if we agree that we need adjudication on a particular discrete issue, and the parties both agree that we're going to individually prepare an argument, if you will, for what we believe is the correct application of the law, then we may approach it that way. However, the more common way, which I know is very unusual, but I think is super helpful for people, is that the collaborative lawyers will work together to create a brief of law that says, here are the various different ways in which this discrete issue could be approached, and then ask a decision maker to tell us what is the correct application.
0: Holy smokes. So you're writing a joint brief on one issue.
2: That wow. Is correct.
0: I Ever would have thought of that?
2: Honestly, is that not really what we do? As litigation lawyers, have you ever been, and I don't know in your jurisdictions if you use the same language, but here in Saskatchewan, we have chambers on Wednesdays and Fridays. Yes. It's not uncommon for one lawyer to appear in chambers on Wednesday to argue for something that on Friday they're arguing against the same thing on similar yeah. facts. And why is that? Well, it's because we know, and the public doesn't necessarily appreciate this, but we know there's more than one way to look at the issue. We can be even um, in a litigation and all agree, you know, there could be two, four, six, eight of us, and we could all agree what the leading cases are. It's all about how we apply those leading cases to the facts. And what facts are we going to bring forward? Well, if you are working in um, a process where the only facts available to you are the facts that your client gives you, your presentation of how the law applies to those facts is going to look a whole heck of a lot different than a presentation of somebody who only has the other half of those facts. So as collaborative lawyers, we have the privilege of hearing the story and understanding the facts from more than one perspective, because if there are two parents involved, there's guaranteed two perspectives. You yeah, throw a grandparent in there, you probably have a third perspective. Maybe there's a couple of kids, I bet you they each have their own perspective. What is actually the truth? And this is where you start to butt up a little bit against the philosophy of our jurisprudence, why we even have law and the certainty that it is to give us. But all it is really is a measuring stick, it gives us something objective to measure a possible outcome against, because we will never know with 100% certainty what the truth is.
1: Just uh, on the collaborative process, if we can talk about that, I mean, someone listening to this might be thinking, gosh, this sounds really good. And I'm going to guess the answer is in part, it depends. But what can they expect in terms of maybe what'll happen and timelines? Like what, what, what will maybe a year or six months of their life look like if they're going through a collaborative process?
2: You know what we always say to people, Darren, is that it's going to take as long as it's going to take. Sure. That's about as much certainty as we can really give anybody, but we can then lay out the so, step number one, you've come and you meet with me. I talk to you about how I practice. I hear your story. I try to understand what are some of the important priorities that you have and the concerns that you need to have addressed. Is there a history of family violence? Are there special needs that you or your children may have or that your spouse may have? And to better understand, because right from day one, we are trying to craft a process that is going to. Suit your particular family system. So from there, and let's just jump forward and make an assumption that your partner is also wanting to use the collaborative process. We have two collaborative lawyers that are on the file. And as lawyers, we're going to pick up the phone and we're going to have a little chat. We're going to talk about what we've learned from our clients that reflect not their confidential facts, but their highest priorities and their concerns. And their concerns not only about the outcome, but their concerns about the process, especially where we have a history of family violence. There will often be concerns about what's it going to look like if we're on the same Zoom call together or we're in the same room together. What if I start to have a trauma response? And I can't focus anymore. What's available to me to be able to pause the meeting and to talk to my lawyer separately. So as collaborative lawyers, we're actually going to talk through all of that and propose a process model within that collaborative So we're going to go then back to our clients together and we're going to, and we often do this by way of a joint email correspondence. So we'll take turns deciding who's going to draft, but we send it under one person's email and we sign it on behalf of both lawyers. And so we'll propose to the clients what we think might be helpful for them in terms of their team. Because we recognize as lawyers, when it comes to helping families navigate this, we're this little teeny tiny piece as far as the law is concerned, they have a whole lot of other things that we've never been trained in as lawyers. So we need to be able to understand what other professionals will they benefit from having involved in their process. And so we'll initially sort of get things set up in that way and then there's meeting number one. And meeting number one is about reviewing the participation contract, making sure everybody understands how this works, make sure that people are clear on what other team members are going to be part of this interdisciplinary approach, and start to think about our homework. What's the information we're going to need first? Now, in the litigation world, we're going to call that disclosure. And in litigation, we're going to say, hey, here's a form to fill out and swear and gather up your documents. But in the collaborative process, we're going to actually allow the parties to identify what level of disclosure they need. What is the information that they don't already have access to? Who needs to go and get what? And we really, right from the very beginning, try to take that common sense, practical approach. Get the information first. And are there any pressing issues that need to be dealt with in that first meeting? And that's kind of the process we follow with each meeting. So if you are a young couple you have no children, barely any property, maybe a little debt, and your collaborative process isn't going to be very complicated. It's not going to take very long. You're going to be kind of divorced and done in and out of that collaborative process but if you've been married for 25 years you have four kids one of them has some special needs one parent hasn't been working in the workforce the other parent is you know diagnosed with an illness that's compromising how much longer they're going to work they've accumulated a net worth of you know, something that's significant, but it's complex because it's tied up in corporations And you know, you name it, that's going to be a very, very different process. And I think the key to success is your calendar, because you need to sit down at that first meeting and say, how often do we think we need to meet? And let's plug that into our calendars, because I don't know about the two of you, but as a busy practitioner, it is really, really hard to fit meetings into our day-to-day lives so if we can plot it out and say, it looks like we're probably going to have to meet every month or every couple of weeks for a few months. And let's put that into our calendars. The clients then have certainty and some expectations. They can plan their calendar and other commitments around that. And then you can keep your process moving forward and not get kind of stuck where it's like, "Hmm, where are we at? It keeps the momentum flowing.
1: Uh, my last question, Charmaine, is you were um, bestowed the wonderful honor of Claw Clawby. For anyone That's that right. doesn't know what that is, is a <laughs> Canadian legal blog award for your excellent work on TikTok. Did they get, do you get a physical award? Do you have like a trophy sitting there somewhere? No,
2: I do. I do not have a trophy sitting here. I'm guessing that being it's kind of a virtual award, our trophies are kind of virtual in existence. I'm not sure. (laughs) I
1: don't like that. I think we got to talk to somebody, but uh, congratulations on that. That's wonderful.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. Congratulations on that phenomenal award. And more broadly, educating Darren and I and our listeners on the work you're doing in leading a shift, I hope, to more collaborative law for better outcomes for families. So if folks want to find you, how can they do that?
2: commonsenselawyer.com is the website address. It's the TikTok handle and uh, always accessible by phone and email Panko at commonsenselawyer.com We're in Saskatchewan which is area code 306-975-7151
0: Charmaine Panko, thank you so much for being with us. Darren Schmidt, I'm Rob Woodward. This has been Divorced and Done and we look forward sucks, but at least it only costs 20 bucks. $20, 20, 20, 20, $20 divorce. Let's get a 20, 20, 20, $20 divorce. We can save money and split our stuff. We'll both pitch in 10 bucks. I saw this ad on the side of a truck, and it, it seems totally legit, right? Like, know, man. like, we can trust the truck ad for legal advice, it's, right? It's, like, it's like so no red flags Let's get a twenty 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 dollar devote. Let's get a twenty 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 dollar devote. Let's get a twenty 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 dollar divot. Let's
2: get a twenty 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 dollar.